And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. soccer show and the second of our 2022 world cup previews in which we'll focus on the big one group b it's a group in which only one team has previously won the world cup it's the nation that tends to get me fired up it's the nation that invented the beautiful game and that also vented america at least that's what i'll claim that's england by the way and i'll stop spinning that yarn and instead i'll move on to discuss Iran. The AFC hopefuls have only ever won two World Cup matches and it gives me no glee to note that one of those games eliminated the USMNT. Yes, the US are back after eight long years. You might even say their talent pool is in arrears. But we have hope, we have belief and we have pretty good grounds to believe Greg's team can make it to the knockout rounds. And before we get to the Group B details, there's one more team to mention. Let's not forget Wales. The Welsh have the potential to make quite a scene, particularly if they get a pre-match talk from Michael Sheen. <laughs> My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today to talk all things Group B, we have a man who believes that we will win, Taylor Rockwell. Hello! Hello! I like that you left the wee vague. I like how many shots were taken in that introduction. It makes me feel better about the way I've chosen to preview England, Ryan. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing very good. Uh, claiming that we invented America was my edgiest one, I think. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of like subtle, subtle shade in there. But overall, I think you uh, you contained yourself well. I know that took a lot of restraint from you. I also liked before we get to the Group B details. That was well done. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, joining us, another man who believes that we will win. Uh, duplicate intro for you, Joe Lowry. Yeah, hey, you spent all your energy on the actual intro, which I did really like. Ryan, it was really good. I've enjoyed the, the Group A one and now Group B as well. It's okay if you reuse stuff to get me in. Uh, yeah, okay, I'm glad to hear it, Joe. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm almost spent for this episode, listener. But uh, before I am spent, we've got a man who is uh, he's aware that his team could have been in this group, but they're, they're just uh, not World Cup oh. material. Graham Rothman, hello. Hello. I mean, I'm going to refrain or try to refrain from cr- uh, crying during this group preview because this was very nearly the ultimate Total Soccer Show group and mm. that all four of us would have been represented by our national teams. Only Scotland could be in a World Cup draw and not actually play in that World Cup. That's what we did. We were in the draw. We were drawn into this group. Uh, We would have been in the place of Wales, but Wales came through the playoff route. And as it is, Scotland aren't at this World Cup. So I'll be talking about my second favourite national team today, Iran. Uh, naturally, yes, naturally. Before we get to that, Graham, uh, but in in the time between us recording our Group B, uh, Group A, and Group B previews, Seth Blatter has been on the airwaves <laughs> to tell us that awarding the World Cup to Qatar was a mistake. For me, it's clear Qatar is a mistake. The choice was bad. Graham Rutherford, your thoughts? 
Hmm, 12, t- 12 years too late there, Sepp, I think, uh, with your observation. Thanks for that. Yeah, it was great that he basically threw Michel Platini under the bus, claiming it was Michel Platini's fault. He took all the votes away from Europe and brought them to Qatar. So he made sure that he came out of it smelling of roses too, which Taylor is, you know, that's very Sepp Blatter, isn't it? It is very Sepp Blatter. I think he, he did that at the time, though, because I think he was very close to Sunil Gulati mm. and it was very much expected that he was supporting the US bid and then I remember the narrative being that Platini came in and sort of changed things but it also feels like that was a thing that probably Sepp made some money off of allegedly fire truck of lawyers uh, assemble uh, and and I'm guessing that now it's just easier to take shots at Platini for Sepp Blatter than it is to kind of actually examine his past behavior uh, because there's so much past behavior to have to examine. Indeed. Two men with uh, terrible reputations in the news there everybody. Uh, Before we get to our Group B preview, we're doing a live show in Brooklyn on November 20th, the very eve, not the eve, the first day of the World Cup, in fact, uh, but the eve of Group B, let's call it that, Uh, on the Sunday night in Brooklyn at Littlefields. uh, Link in the description for the tickets. Graham, there's going to be lots of fun and games, isn't there? There is indeed, and we're all very much looking forward to seeing all of you, hundreds of you at Littlefield in, in, in Brooklyn on the opening day of the World Cup, as you say, Ryan. And we'd like to introduce a little bit of a quirk, something that people who are coming along can prepare for. And we'd we'd like to see you all in your most embarrassing jersey on the night. So it could be something outrageous design-wise, or it could be of a doomed team that got relegated that season, or it could have the, the name of a player who you thought was going to be a superstar on the back and then actually turned out to be a complete dud. So, Taylor Rockwell, I assume you're going to be wearing your Manchester United baby shirt to the, <laughs> the live show that uh, night. So I'm glad I was too broke to ever buy a Gabriel Oberton Manchester United jersey. <laughs> that would have not been a great look for me. I forgot you were on that hype train, weren't I you? Was. You thought he was going to be good, and that he was, was su- not. That was such a, like, we'll find somebody to replace Ronaldo, uh, and it's going to be this guy, and kind of ignoring all reality around it, which mm. is something you have to do as a soccer fan, hopefully not if you're a U.S. fan at this World Cup. Yeah, so if anyone out there has got a Gabriel Obertan shirt, please wear it to our live show on November twentieth at Littlefield in Brooklyn. We'd we'd like to see, uh, we'd like to see a sea of horrifically embarrassing soccer jerseys, mm-hmm. and the most embarrassing will win a prize, yeah. and we promise that it won't be a jump from a shoe. Oh goodness, <laughs> let's not let's not get into that. Um, Taylor, if you had got a Gabriel Obertan shirt, you could have um, taken the tee off, put it on the front for Taylor, and then you could have pretended you were a Shakespeare fan on the back. I'll let that one sink <laughs> in for a second. Um, in the meantime, we are going to be talking about Group B. Uh, Taylor Rockwell, controversially, you are going to be covering 1966 World Champions, mm-hmm. 2018 semi finalists, England. That's fun. I am. Yeah. How are you feeling about that? I'm feeling good. Um, I am going to be covering um, Scotland's much more tolerable UK cousin, Wales. So I'm quite happy <sighs> to cover Wales in this one. Graham, as we mentioned, you are covering the AFC's highest ranked team, Iran. That mm-hmm. would be fun. And Joe Lowry, you got him. The US. Pumped? Yeah, baby. Uh, things are things are good, question mark, <laughs> I think. <laughs> Yeah, just, just an accurate sounding of where we are as USMT supporters right there. <laughs> yep, it's incredible. <laughs> All right, we're going to go around the houses as we did in Group A, and we're going to start off by learning about our respective nations' nicknames and the nicknames we'd like to give them to give a summary of the oeuvre, if you will. Taylor, kick us off mm-hmm. with England. England are the three lions, uh, and a point I love to make when you look at that badge, just remember that they had to cram in that last one, like when you don't leave enough uh, space to write out birthday 
Third Lion just crammed on in there with a bent paw. Uh, but my nickname, one that isn't apt and then one that is, uh, The International Conflict is their first nickname because they've been at war with all three opponents uh, in this group at various Yikes. points in their history. Yep. Uh, and if you are confused about that one, then you didn't Google the Anglo-Persian War, which I did yesterday. So there you go. Uh, all three opponents have been at war with England, but I am instead saying a more apt nickname for this group would be The Conditionals because I think this England team can make a very deep run. I think they could could easily make it to the semifinals of the final. You never know. But I think there's a lot of if they do this and if they get that right and if they figure this out. There are so many conditionals about this team that I think we'll know so much more about them after those first couple games. But it's like who should play where? How should they play? What should the formation be? Who should start? Will this person be fit? There's just so many question marks around them once we get the squad, once we get closer to their actual first day in that kickoff and we know who can play in the first eight game, who will be back for the knockout round if they advance, then I think we'll have some things locked in about this team. But for now, they are the conditionals. The conditionals. I, I can see you're in doubting Thomas mood already, Taylor. I like it. I, well, I don't know because I think there is reason, there is significant reason for optimism for this team, I think. And I think so much of the coverage of England is overblown and it's, and it's hypercritical while also like like not critical enough in certain ways. Uh, I think it's really interesting. I listened to two different podcasts. One had a guest on talking about how Gareth Southgate hasn't gotten nearly enough out of this group, that they need to be more attack- attacking. There's so much talent there. Uh, and then the other podcast had a guest on who was talking about how this England team doesn't stack up to any teams of the past, how they don't have any of the talent they used to have, and how Gareth Southgate has done an amazing job to get this team to play the way he has because there's just such wow. a lack of talent in there. And I think that what? disparity right there tells you <laughs> something about the way this team is being covered in England. Wow. Did that did that person think that England was the other team they were I don't <laughs> <laughs> I'm dumbfounded by that observation. Yeah. yeah, I think they went so far as to make the argument that, like, you look at that midfield, there's no Lampards, there's no Gerrards, and I was like, you watch those two teams, those two guys play together, right? Oh, my. Okay, <laughs> let's move on. Goodness me. Let's move on. Graham, Iran's nicknames and your proposed name. Okay, so Iran's real-world nickname is Team Meli, which in Persian, I, pr- I presume I have completely got that pronunciation wrong, but Team Melee, which in uh, Persian essentially translates to the national team. I find that national team nicknames fall into one of two categories. They're either so literal it's painful, like this one, or Daimanshaft, or they're wonderfully eccentric, like the Indomitable Lions, which is Cameroon's nickname. That's always one of the best national team nicknames. Um, there is nothing in between, and this is this is very much one of those literal, boring national team nicknames. So, Graham, by I the would way, say, you, you've made uh, the German nickname sound much more like a threat by calling it Diamondschaft. I like that. <laughs> Ryan, we have already established <laughs> that uh, pronunciations are not my thing, and I, I think I think there's a, a practical joke going on here. But the teams that I am being given in this, in this, I had Ecuador yesterday. I've got Iran today. I think I've got South Korea later in in my previews. So yeah, look forward to that one. But uh, I would say I'm giving this nickname a, a nickname a, th- a thumbs down. But I was reading that a thumbs up in Iran is actually an offensive gesture. So maybe I'm giving this a thumbs up. I don't know. I was a bit confused about that. Anyway, certainly isn't the most interesting of nicknames. So uh, let's give Iran another one. We could get pretty dark with a total soccer show nickname for an Iranian national team. So I'll go in a different direction. I'm going to call them the, the you've seen this team before team. So this will be the third straight World Cup Iran have played at and they have the same manager that they've had at that, those, those last two World Cups. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that later on. And I expect that they'll play in much the same way as, as they played the last two World Cups. So, yeah, that's the nickname that I am giving them. Or we could call them uh, Ryan's second team because it seems like Coca-Cola are trying to recruit you, Ryan. 
<laughs> they are, yes. Uh, to, to reference, uh, to clear that reference up, um, the Coke Zeros, which I drink too many of in Italy, they have uh, World Cup flags on them at the moment. I've had the Netherlands, I've had uh, a few others, but mostly I get Iran, and they're trying to tell me something. I think I've had about 12 Irans by now, Graham. So Yeah, yeah there's definitely a message. a message. There's a message there somewhere. Um, Joe, the USA. All right, let's do this. So the USA has a couple of nicknames. Neither one, I think, ever gets used, and that's why we're doing the TSS nickname. So the Stars and Stripes, I guess, is tossed around every once in a while, and the Yanks is the other one that I that I think is occasionally used to refer to this team. My TSS nickname, though, I feel like gets more at the heart of this team and at American soccer culture in general. So my TSS nickname for this USA team is Young, Promising, Always Injured FC SC United Real. That's my nickname <laughs> for this team. Young, promising, always injured FC, SC, United, Real. Um, the, the first part <laughs> describes the USMNT in particular. Young. This team's likely going to be the youngest at the World Cup when we get all the rosters announced. That'll be next week that those are all finalized. They are promising, right? We're talking about players at, at big clubs, at big teams, doing you know big things, at least in, in comparison to what past American soccer players have done in Europe, and then always injured because they're always injured. And we can talk more about that later. I don't need to get into it right now. And then the FC, SC, United, Real. I mean, if that doesn't scream American soccer team names, I don't honestly don't know what does. Very good. 10 out of 10. I like that a lot. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yep. <laughs> uh, my, my team I'm covering is Wales, and I'm going to go out on a limb here and say they have the best national team nickname in all of the nations in the FIFA, the Dragons. Because as HBO has taught us, nothing's cooler than a dragon, right? Or if we're going to say in Welsh, Idragwai. I believe I've got that right. I did a slightly Marquisheen accent to try and uh, sell it. I apologize to any Welsh native speakers listening. My nickname for Apology the Apology probably not accepted, I'm guessing. <laughs> probably not. No, probably not. But we shall see. Let's uh, Please write in, in your native tongue, if you, uh, if you wish to complain about my pronunciation, because there's more coming. Um, the nickname I've given this team, the Overachievers. And I'll explain that, because this is Wales' first World Cup in 64 years. Uh, they're a tiny, tiny nation. Three million people. There's more sheep than people. Rugby is as popular, if not more popular than soccer. And the Cymru League, which uh, the Welsh League isn't particularly big, and most of the big Welsh teams, Swansea, Wrexham, Cardiff, Newport and so on, have joined the English system when the Welsh League, they, they did so when the Welsh League formed in 1992 as an amateur league. So it's very, very impressive that this Welsh team has gone to three of the last four tournaments and gone pretty deep, particularly in Euro 2016. It's impressive that a national team with that nation, that smaller population, with more sheep than people, as I say, has achieved what it has up to this point. Does that sound fair, Taylor, to call them overachievers in that context? Oh, yeah, I think absolutely. And I think that that's what they they kind of always are. It's why you can't write them out in any competition, because though they never seem like they're going to be able to assemble a team that can play that cohesive style, the aggressive style that we've come to expect from them, they keep doing it. They keep finding ways to win. They keep qualifying for stuff. So, yeah, I think they are definitely mm -hmm. overachievers in my mind. I'm, and I'm not bitter at all about that overachievement. <laughs> From a UK nation that's an underachiever, Graham? Yes, precisely. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Nail the head. Indeed. We're agreed. <laughs> Wait, right. I, I'm actually curious, Graham, how much, like, are you, will there be any loyalty towards towards Wales for you at all? No. I mean, not that you would have any. Okay, so it is just pure, <laughs> pure neighborly jealousy then. 
Uh, absolutely. Okay. I'll be completely honest with this. I think I've admitted this before. I, I am quite bitter about this Welsh team just because they are so good. And they've, as Ryan says, they've done so well in recent tournaments. And Scotland, obviously a bigger population. We've got a, a stronger kind of track record and historical pedigree. We have done none of the things that they've done recently. So, yeah, a little bit bitter and a little bit jealous that they will be at this World Cup. Let's move on to the next category. <laughs> uh, the story of the team heading into the tournament. Uh, Taylor, tell us about England's triumphs and magnificence over the last months and years. Yeah, I mean, England have had plenty of triumphs, uh, including making the World Cup semifinal, making the Euro final. They haven't quite uh, brought it home just yet more recently, though. They did in 1966, as Ryan mentioned, so there's that. Uh, they are presently 0-2 against the United States in World Cup <laughs> play. We'll see if they can uh, From the make rooftops, that Taylor. From the even, rooftops. <laughs> even more perfect. Uh, I would also extend that to, if we're going with the international conflict analogy, uh, Revolutionary War. I'm going to say that's a... That's a a U.S. win. That's 1-0. I'm going to say War of 1812 a draw, but it's one of those draws that feels like a win. So USA also 2-0 in that way. Uh, so there you go, Ryan. So an, an uphill battle for England, calling, but I think they will be a, able to find their way through. A 1-1 uh, draw think, is 0-2. Okay, cool. Go on. I mean, you know, we still exist. I think that was sure. kind of what England didn't want to happen in the War of 1812. So in I that way. I was talking more about the go. game of 2010, but go on. Nah, yeah, we won that one. It counts. <laughs> uh, injuries is, I think, the story of this team right now. For uh, as good as they have been at times, they have struggled at times, specifically more recently, and I think injuries play a big part in that. They've been fortunate to keep their front three healthy, especially Harry Kane, though there was a story today in The Athletic that Tottenham feel no responsibility to keep Harry Kane uh, healthy for the World Cup. Uh, hopefully he, he makes nice it through this weekend unscathed. Um, but they will be without Ben Chilwell, hamstring injury uh, against Dinamo Zagreb. He is out. Kyle Walker has not played for City since a groin injury in October. Likely to be included, even if he has to miss the first game. Uh, And I think he is a key, key player for them. Calvin Phillips has been sidelined for six weeks. He is potentially playing uh, for City against Chelsea today. Reese James out with injury. uh, James Justin stretchered off yesterday, so we'll see how he is. But there are many injury concerns for this England team heading into this tournament. Uh, and then there are formation concerns. That's really been the dominant storyline, to my mind, is the shifting from a back three to a back four and back again uh, that in the 2018 World Cup, or excuse me, the 2020 Euros uh, played in 2021. We have to always clarify what dates and when because it's all very confusing. Um, that they were able to play in a back four in the group stage, but against stronger opposition, they switched to a back three. And that's where you get into that sort sort of confusion, consternation about this team of should they have the talent and the ability to play in a back four and have more attackers more involved? Is a back three enough? Do they have the players they need to be able to play the back three effectively? Again, we go back to the conditionals. There are many things about this England team that I think are confusing. There are some things that I think are are fairly straightforward, but I do think this is probably the last ride for Gareth Southgate as England manager that like maybe if they win maybe if they make another deep run then things change but I think this is his opportunity to show that he can kind of bring out that final evolution in this team or maybe prove that he was not able to bring about that final evolution and and then they look to somebody else to do so and I think that's sort of where England are poised uh, on the edge, or on the verge of this World Cup starting, is a very good team with a ton of talent, hampered by injuries, but also hampered by some tactical concerns as well. Yeah, the, the TLDR, which I'm getting for you, which I agree with Taylor, is um, this team should be good, but we don't know if they will be. 
Yeah, I mean that that really is it, and it's it, and I actually was like hesitant with this one, Ryan, because I, I think I personally have been of the mind that this is going to be a bad tournament for England, not for any particular reason. It's just a gut feeling of in the past things aligned and they figured some things out and they were like a very harmonious squad that didn't feel the pressure, and I think the pressure is kind of back on there. As I said in the intro, there's just been more negative coverage to my mind than I had seen for uh, more recent tournaments. And I, and I think there's an expectation that isn't taking into consideration some of the concerns I'm discussing. And I think those concerns are amplified by their recent form. There's the the 3-3 draw to Germany. That's great. But there's a loss to Italy. There's the 4-0 loss to Hungary. There's a draw with Italy. There's a draw with Germany. Uh, there's a loss to Hungary. Like They have not been in a very good run of form the 10 nil over San Marino notwithstanding, uh, I think you have to kind of look at this England team uh, as what they are, which is a very good team with vulnerabilities that if they can come together, and I honestly, I think, play a defensive game in a back three, I think they will be successful. If they try to play expansive football and go at their opponents and, and kind of breeze through the group, I think that they will be in for a rude awakening. All right. Uh, thank you very much, Taylor. Uh, Graham, Iran. And by the way, I've just figured out why there's so many Iran Coke Zeros in Italy. Flags are kind of the same colors and maybe they just want to be a part of this <laughs> tournament. What do you think? Yeah, they just printed loads of Iranian flags on Coke cans and said, yeah, we can just we send those to Italy and they can pretend that they're in the World Cup. I'm, I'm really am. Sorry to jump in. I really do think now like it's an alphabetized shipping thing that was a mistake because like Italy IT, Iran IR. Like, I wonder if they just got it off by, like, uh, one letter or something like that, and now all of the Iran shipment went to Italy. Yeah. Ryan, we need you to fly to Iran and find out if they have Italian Coke. Uh, <laughs> yeah, pitch the athletic. <laughs> they don't have Italian yeah. World Cup Coke, Taylor, I can tell you that. That does feel like a Pablo Mara story, if we're being honest. <laughs> Anyway, Iran, let's talk yeah. about them. Um, there are certainly more talented teams in terms of, an, of the individuals at this World Cup, but when you look at their qualification record it maybe suggests that they might be a bit stronger than many expect them to be at this tournament. So they won 15 of their 18 qualification fixtures. They finished top of the, the final round of qualifiers. There's, there's, there's two rounds of qualifiers, but that final round is, is the most testing in terms of the, the quality of the opposition, similar to, to kind of CONCACAF qualification rounds. And they, they finished with the most points of any AFC team. So they finished with more points in South Korea, more points in Saudi Arabia, Japan, Australia. Iran had a better record uh, than all of them. And this was actually their best ever World Cup qualification campaign. So when I mentioned they've been at previous World Cups, on the basis of the qualification campaign, you could argue that this team is stronger than those those past teams. Um, you would you would think that this record would have been enough for Dragan Skokic, who was their manager. That that would have been enough for him to keep his job for the World Cup. But you would be wrong. Um, there was an Iranian mm-hmm. FA presidential election, and one of the candidates vowed that if he won, he would bring back Carlos Queiroz as manager, uh, like some sort of World Cup ghost. And uh, Queiroz being the man who coached Iran at the last two World Cups, he he is he's he's very popular with a lot of the Iranian fans. So that was similar to when Florentino Perez, when he is uh, up, up for election at Real Madrid, he'll say he'll sign Beckham or Ronaldo or Juan Laporta, saying that he'll sign all these players. Lewandowski, similar sort of thing. Meditaj, who was that candidate, has a friendship with Queiroz, and he said that if he won, then Carlos Queiroz would be back in charge of the national team. He indeed he indeed won, and Skokic was sacked, and then he was reinstated. <laughs> And then he was sacked again in the space of a month. And at the end of that month, Queiroz was hired uh, back as the Iranian national team. And, and that all happened two to three months before the, the start of the 
the World Cup. So so while Iran's qualification campaign, it was certainly very strong, as I say, 15 wins out of 18 games. Um, the, the team that actually plays at this World Cup could be a little bit different because they now have a different manager in charge. And looking at their, their, their historical track record, this will be the sixth time Iran have played at the World Cup, but they've never made it past the group stage before. And as you mentioned in your intro, Ryan, I think they've only ever won two games in tournament history. So not the best record. I do think Iran will be competitive at this World Cup, I don't see them getting battered by anyone in this group, um, not even England because of the way that they play under Gareth Southgate. But I do think it's going to take, skipping ahead to my prediction, I do think it's going to take something special for, for them to break their last 16 duck at this tournament. All right. Thank you, Graham. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to learn of the story of Wales, but not before we learn of the story of the USMNT. Back shortly. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Joe Lowry, we turn to you to hear a little about the US, if you will. So the story of the USMNT coming into this World Cup is basically just like the world's least fun roller coaster ever. So it's pretty much just constantly flipping back and forth. And maybe that says something about how we think about national teams and our expectations being wrong. But this this team story does go back and forth a lot. So September, the most recent games we saw from the USMNT, an awful loss to Japan and a, a really disappointing draw with Saudi Arabia. Both of those friendlies were in Europe. So the, the mood around the team right now has not been especially high. You think back to World Cup qualifying, in general, my summary would be kind of ugly, but got the job done, which I think is a lot of what tends to happen in World Cup qualifying and CONCACAF, even for teams like Mexico. The U.S. took five points in the first window after talking up a nine-point window. Ricardo Pepe may have saved Greg Berhalter's job in the third game of that window against Honduras away, although Greg probably still wasn't going to get fired at that moment. Then you have ups and downs during the rest of, of World Cup qualifying. October started well, and then there was a really bad loss to Panama away. Taylor, I'm sure you remember that. Then another weekend, there was a good win against Costa Rica. Then comes Dos Cero. Taylor, you were there for that. Then you get ahead to the final window, and, and the U.S. qualifies on the final day with a pretty mediocre, disappointing, anticlimactic loss to Costa Rica. That's the story of this team, Ryan. It's ups, it's downs. That applies tactically in terms of the U.S.'s approach, and it's at times varied approach and, and maybe not effective approach. It applies to individual performances. I think about Weston McKinney. At times during World Cup qualifying, he looked great. At times, he got sent home for issues in Nashville. Other times, he just didn't play well. And I think that applied to a lot of the U.S. back in September. So you can kind of play this game back and forth. And the other thing is injuries, right? That is what is constantly up and down in this team. The best players don't play together. That's just the reality for this team. The best group of players so often is not on the field together at the same time. That will be true with the World Cup as well. Chris Richards is not going to be there. Miles Robinson is not going to be there. Those are two of the U.S.'s three best center backs. You can look in other areas of the field as well, and this team has been plagued by injuries consistently over the last, uh, basically since Greg Baralter took over, I think you could say. So 
it's it's up and down. The U.S. has the talent to make a move in this tournament. They've shown that at times in the last year, two years, three years, whatever it's been. But they also have enough issues that this thing could really go either way. Joe, the the up and down the roller coaster analogy makes me think of Borussia Dortmund. Is there an analogy there in terms of the highs and lows and the expectation? Yeah, I think Dortmund is a bit of a generous comparison to the U.S. <laughs> in if we're thinking about them being Dortmund relative to the World Cup pool. Okay. But uh, maybe, yeah, I think that happens with a lot of teams, though. I don't think this is necessarily unique about the U.S. Yes, Dortmund has dealt with a lot of injuries, and that is true about the U.S. men's national team as well. It's just a struggle, right? Players are playing a lot of games. I think too many soccer games. They're getting injured. The U.S. happens to be particularly injury-prone and young and trying to figure out their way and trying to, to develop together. And that stuff's hard. I think that's ultimately what it comes down to is that stuff is really hard. Joe, I know you're not the biggest NFL NFL fan, but I'm about to say something slightly devastating. In thinking of teams that I feel like are an appropriate analogy for the United States, I'm left with the Jacksonville Jaguars, which really, really oh. upsets me. I know exactly. But it's a team that, like, I think internationally everyone is sort of like, all right, yeah, you guys are doing stuff. Yeah, we hear you. And I feel like that's how kind of people treat the Jaguars. But then there's always these parts and components. They're always the best they've ever been. They've got this talent coming through, and it doesn't quite gel into something that uh, maybe it could have been or should have been. Uh, and maybe along the way it got a little bit overhyped at the same time. I do not love that I'm making that comparison, but it is the one that yeah. jumps out. Because I agree with you that Dortmund feels a bit generous. Mm-hmm. Can can Will Trap be Blake Bortles, Taylor? Something about that feels right to me. I don't know what it is. That's a reference for a small number of people in terms I mean, of Blake anybody Bortles. Anybody good place is loving that. That's one. true. That is true. And Taylor, Bortles. I I, Bortles. I think Ryan's comparison was too generous. I think yours is too harsh. Like I think the U.S. is far better than the Jacksonville Jaguars. They have the talent to do some good stuff in this tournament. It just hasn't been the easiest ride to get here. All right. We'll hear much more about the US, uh, the tactics, the roster, key players, so on and so forth. I want to get into a quick pressy of the Welsh team. Uh, They qualified through UEFA playoffs. They beat Austria and Ukraine in March and June, respectively, after a second place finish in the UEFA group uh, that featured Belgium, Belgium topping that group. Uh, They only lost once in qualification to Belgium, indeed. Uh, and had a very good um, streak after losing to Belgium in that group. They probably had one of the toughest qualifiers you can imagine in terms of that Ukraine game. We had a game where the entire world wanted Ukraine to win. A very emotional game it was, given the um, situation in Ukraine, of course. And it was a a Gareth Bale free kick that decided that game in Wales' favour. So in tough circumstances, the Welsh uh, qualified for this tournament. They are 19th in the FIFA rankings, which kind of surprised me, but given their recent successes is, uh, I suppose, unsurprising. Um, And by the way, all teams in this group are in the top 20 in UEFA rankings. The US are 16th, England are 5th, and Iran, Iran, Iran are 20th. Um, as I mentioned, this is Wales' Wales's first World Cup since 1958 when they reached the quarterfinals in Sweden, in case you're interested. Um, but as I mentioned, um, they've been getting back into tournaments after many decades of absence, making the semifinals in the Euros and the round of 16 at the most recent Euros in 2021, the 2020 tournament, as we have laid out, Taylor. Um, so very, very good so far uh, in recent years from this team. And also interesting to note that Obviously, the US and Iran have played each other on the World Cup stage before. Um, England and Wales have played each other very recently in tournament 
play in 2016. England and Wales shared a group. England needed a 90-second minute winner from Daniel Sturridge to claim it, which makes it feel like it was a lot longer ago than 2016. And Wales topped that group in Euro 2016 ahead of England, the England team that went on to lose to Iceland in the round of 16. So... Um, Good to see Wales back on this stage, I would say. Overachieving, but very, very welcome to be here. Why don't we go, Taylor, back to the England team and talk a little bit about the manager, the tactics. You dug into it a little bit already with the back three, back four scenario and uh, potentially Gareth Southgate's uh, last ride, whether it goes well or badly. Tell us more. Yeah, uh, we'll start with fashion choices. Uh, Gareth Southgate has gone from uh, the waistcoat, the tie, the jacket to what I'm assuming is considered like almost leisure wear or like pajamas, which is to say a sport coat and a uh, button up shirt with the top button unbuttoned. That feels like the height of uh, sort of just like laid back vibes when it comes to England formal wear, Ryan. I blame Scott Parker. Go on. <laughs> I want to say also, I, I don't think I've ever seen a photo used of Gareth Southgate smiling. It is always him screaming or him looking completely concerned with the furrow brow or him looking completely confused. I think that doesn't help with the kind of like uh, giving him that air of confidence and swagger that maybe he had previously. But as I said in the intro, uh, he hasn't necessarily done that himself, uh, though maybe he deserves a bit more credit than I and some folks give him because... Because again, uh, 2018 World Cup semifinals, he makes the Euro final, they lose in penalties in pretty dramatic fashion. Um, and so I think this could be a tournament where they put it together and they figure it all out. And we see the, the best England team, the most dominant performance from England that we have seen, again, depending on what he chooses to do. Because there has been that experimentation with the back four more recently. He's, I think, he, uh, by all accounts, uh, Southgate puts some of the blame on the of the team's uh, failures in those last two tournaments on their lack of formational flexibility that you play the back four against weaker opposition, you play back three against stronger opposition, but I think he wants to be able to chop and change a bit more fluidly based on what that opponent is doing, not just assuming, oh, it's Germany or Spain, so we're going with a back three. Uh, and so I think in that attempt to experiment, he has sort of weakened certain areas. It's a little bit like the United States and what Joe was talking about, uh, in my mind at least, that there's for... When you sort of experiment, like, okay, we know we've got this and this and this stable, but now I want to try this thing. But to try that thing, I have to move this person over to this different position. And you start sort of diluting what you've figured out. And I think if Southgate can make this team just be the back three unit that it can be, then I think that they're going to be really successful. A lot of that will depend on Kyle Walker coming in and being able to play. Again, he's been out with injury, but I think he is, in a lot of ways, England's most important player in this tournament, which is a strange thing to say about a right back slash right center back. But I'll talk more about players in a little bit, and I think it will become clear why I feel that way. But I think Southgate clearly has the connection to the players. He's been there long enough to have uh, strong relationships. Uh, maybe the opposite of strong relationships with some players. I think uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold will end up making this roster, which wasn't necessarily going to be the case a couple months ago. Uh, and if he's able to get the best out of him, I think that will, will certainly help them, though I'm guessing Kieran Trippier will start ahead of him. But I think there's a lot of little issues that Gareth Southgate needs to figure out. Overall, I think the big one is that back three or back four. And I think a back three gives them a platform for success. Yes, and defensive stability, as you say, against those more progressive teams, Taylor, progressive if we can use that term for national yeah, teams. Yeah, I think it's just also what they're more comfortable in. I think a lot of players are now used to playing in a back three, but it also, it, it just 
I feel like England have very capable defenders. I don't think that they have top-tier defenders, and that usually is what that back four, back three debate uh, ends up resting on, is that can Harry Maguire and John Stones be your two center backs? Probably not. You need a little more cover. That that seems to be the argument. But I think overall, you look at the people, even with the injuries, who they're going to start at the wing backs. Uh, I think that gives them plenty of, of attacking intent in the channels. I think it gives you the defensive cover. You have the two midfielders, likely to be Jude Bellingham and Declan Rice, uh, who I think, again, do the defensive side of things, can help transition to attack. It leaves you a front three that can be very fluid in the way they attack. And, and I think it just sets you up to be a frustrating, difficult team to play. And I think it's okay for England to be that. I think that suits them. But I think when they try to be this expansive, possession side with everybody kind of bombing forward and numbers everywhere. I don't think that's quite who they are. I don't think who that's bet they've been under Southgate, and I don't think they've looked good when they've tried to play that way. You mentioned England are at their best, right, when they're not having to go out and, and do all this stuff, yeah. right, when they're not having to go and be on the front foot. How does that factor into the calculus of this group, mm-hmm. right? And I know, Ryan, later you'll ask us about predictions, because I think you could say the exact same thing about every other team in this group but probably harder mm-hmm. to the point where maybe England are going to have to have the ball. How do you see that playing out? And do you see that being yeah. a concern for Gareth Southgate? Yes, I do. I, and I think ultimately what what the thing will be is who has the more pressure on them. Because I, I think for Wales to sit deep and play England to a nil-nil draw is a win for Wales. It is not a win for England. And so right. in, that, in that regard, yeah, then it has to be England going forward. But I think and being more aggressive and taking some chances and committing numbers. I think if England start by trying to be that aggressive, uh, I think it does a potentially that works, but more likely to me is that on the one hand that stalls and then you sort of now your initial game plan isn't working, but also it's then on you to try to figure it out. You have to make these adjustments in game to to put yourself in a stronger position. But along the way, if you overcommit, if you do get too focused on that attack, if you're England, you leave yourself vulnerable to the counter and all three teams that they're going to be playing against are more than happy to take those counterattacking opportunities. And that's where I think England could get themselves into trouble. So I think earlier on, it's basically accepting that nil-nil at halftime in their opener is not the worst scenario if you're playing in a back three, if you are being slightly cautious to start. I don't think throwing everything at an opponent to show that we can win these games comfortably is going to put them in the best position overall. It might win you a game, it might win you a half, but I think it might also cost you a goal or two along the way. Graham, um, let's bring you in to talk about Iran in that case then, because I, I feel like for that opening game on the 21st, the second day of World Cup play, England versus Iran, I feel like England might do the back four because Iran are going to try and sit very deep and frustrate. And I, I will bet the farm on that being a nil-nil draw and the media turning on England because Iran managed to do exactly what they're aiming to do in that game. It seems to be on the cards, doesn't it? In that England struggle playing that sort of expansive game for all the reasons that Taylor has just outlined there. And Iran, as I will come on to, to talk about, they will very much try to stay compact, hit out on the counter. So yeah, even though in terms of the individual quality of the two teams, England clearly have a, a massive advantage over Iran and a, and a big advantage over every every other team in, in this group. The, the makeup of the group um, there is a theory that we might not see England at their best until they get to the knockout rounds. And obviously, if you have a poor group stage, then maybe you don't make it as far as the knockout rounds. All right. Um, tell us a bit more about um, Iran, um, about Carlos Quiris' approach then, Graham, if you will. So there are, a few, there are a few FIFA rules when it comes to World Cups. So the hosts have to have some dodgy human rights record. You're only allowed, allowed to drink uh, Budweiser 
inside the stadiums. And Carlos Queiroz has to manage a team. It's the, it's the law. So this is Carlos Queiroz's uh, fourth straight World Cup. It's his uh, 15th different managerial job of his career. It's his third straight World Cup in charge of Iran, um, which is a little bit of a, a match made in hell because I'm, I'm not convinced Queiroz's style of football will make Iran very entertaining to watch at this World Cup or at any World Cup, as we've seen in, in, in past tournaments for Iran. The caveat here is that Queiroz, this time, he's only been in charge, as I mentioned previously, he's only been in charge um, for a short while for two friendly matches. That's all he's had since returning as, as manager. So there's not a great deal of evidence out there on how he will set up this specific team for this specific tournament. However, I looked at those two games that they played and this is a team that primarily tries to keep things compact at the back. Um, so that's the sort of thing I was talking about, Ryan, with, with the makeup of that England game, their, their opening match, what they'll try to do in that game. So they'll try and keep things tight at the back, hit out on the counter-attack. And they're pretty good at this, at least in Asian qualifying terms. So they, they conceded just four goals in, in um, 10 fixtures in the final round of qualifying. Um, and they, they'll be difficult to play through and they'll be difficult to break down. If things go well for, the, for them in Qatar, obviously there's a much higher standard of competition. But if things go well for them, that, that they will be difficult to play through. That is what they're aiming for. In terms of the, the formation, Queros, he'll probably use a 4-1-4-1 formation at the World Cup and there have been some subtle changes in the way that Iran played those two friendly matches that I mentioned which by the way those two friendly matches were a 1-0 win against Uruguay and a 1-1 draw against Senegal so not too shabby at all um, the indications are that Queros wants Iran to play out from the back a little bit more he wants them to play a slightly higher line so just a little bit more expansive but it's, it's shades of grey I must stress that this is still very much a, a compact conservative team um, they aren't about to become a, a Pep Guardiola side or anything like that but those are two things we should look out for at this World Cup um, when Iran have possession they like to push the wingers high and they're the ones that, that provide the width and that pushes them into more of a 4-3-3 shape on the ball they are very vertical with their play so Queros is not a, a major fan of having his players hold on to the ball for long periods of time. They are not a possess possession-hungry team in general, but I do like that they have a bit of flexibility in terms of how they attack, and I watched those two friendlies against Uruguay and Senegal, and the approach in each match was very different to the other, at least in terms of how they constructed attacks. So against Senegal, they were quite uh, happy, content to hold their shapes, stay compact, allowed the opposition to, to come onto them, dom dominate the ball. While against Uruguay, they had much more possession in that game. They had more possession than Uruguay in this, that match, and they were able to build up from the back. And they were helped by a lack of pressure on the ball by Uruguay. That is very much their game plan. But nonetheless, it showed that Iran do have that tactical toggle, which make, might make them ever so slightly unpredictable at this World Cup. Maybe they're not going to be compact for every minute of every match that they play at this tournament. Um, and that, that could be pretty useful. Yeah, I'm more anxious about this game from an England perspective than the USA or Wales one, Graham, for many of the reasons you've outlined there. I think it's going to be a tough slog. Um, Joe, tell us about the USA, their manager, their tactics, all sorts of things like that. Yeah, so this might be the easiest section that I'll have for any of these World Cup previews because I spent a lot of time thinking and talking about these things on this show and other places as well. Greg Berother is the manager of this team. He took over at the tail end of 2018, and his mission was to try to get the U.S. back to the World Cup, or at least that was one of his missions. And he did it, right? After the U.S. missed in 2018, he got them back to the World Cup, and he deserves credit for that. Greg Berother is a really divisive figure among U.S. men's national team fans. He's done some things very well. I think the locker room is strong. I think that's very clear. The dual national recruitment has been excellent. Sergino Dest chose to play for the U.S. Ricardo Pepe chose to play for the U.S. Those are just two examples. 
And I think generally speaking, Brawlthor's done a good job of keeping this group of players together and getting them excited about being together. And I do think that's important. Tactically, there are question marks around this team. One of Greg Berhalter's other missions when he took over was to change the way the world views American soccer. And Graham, you and I talked about this. I think it's pretty clear that this has not been done. Right? Greg Berhalter has not really shifted the perception around the U.S. men's national team. His, his thought process behind that, or at least as far as I can tell, was to try to get the U.S. to be more of a possession team than they've ever been before. And we've seen that at times throughout Greg Berhalter's tenure. We've never really seen it work particularly well, especially not against good teams. So there is a question mark there. The U.S.'s best games and some of their best results under Berhalter have been against Mexico, as an example, a high-quality opposition. Uh, and, and they're going to, in those games, the U.S. has sat deeper. And they've defended and tried to attack on the break, very much like U.S. men's national teams that we've seen in the past. So I, I do think it's likely that we'll see a mix of quick transition attacks against England, if the U.S. can force them to have the ball and do that kind of thing against England. And, and maybe we'll see more of the U.S. with the ball against Wales and Iran and the question for me is less about how dangerous the U.S. can be in transition against a team like England, but more about, you know, can they pick up points in the first group stage game against Wales? Can they pick up points against Iran when those teams may or may not have any desire to go out and attack? So there are question marks there about what this team looks like and how they'll play. We've seen kind of everything from Greg Berhalter, except for the formation side. Usually it's a 4-3-3 from Berhalter. Certainly in the press, it will be that shape. In possession, formations are especially fluid, and so we could see a number of different things. But it's most likely going to be that 4-3-3 shape with one number six and two number eights in front of that player, and then two wingers and a number nine in the back four. You get the idea. That's kind of the rundown on the U.S. A lot of uncertainty about how this team's going to uh, approach games but in general, there have been some good things and some bad things under Greg Baralter, and that's just kind of the deal with this group at this point. Hey, Joe, two questions from me for you. One, yeah. uh, when we start our new manager consulting business, uh, are we going to make point number one that uh, all new international managers should avoid grandiose statements about their future aspirations? Because that feels like it always ends up haunting the coach long term. And that one in particular is interesting, Taylor, because I don't think Baralter said that publicly at first. Mm-hmm. I think that we all found out about that mission through like a U.S. soccer YouTube video mm. that they did of, of recording of his oh, team talk. Right. And I don't know if Berhalter was keen about that or not. I actually think it's a great thing to tell your players, right? I think especially with what Berhalter wanted to do, I don't think the execution has been there. But I think it's a good thing in general to try to get the U.S. playing more with the ball to beat teams in CONCACAF and really control those games. I think that's great. The challenge is maybe you just don't want that released to the public. <laughs> That maybe is where right. things got a little hairier. There we go. All right, I like that one. And second thing, uh, how are you feeling? We're recording this before the roster has been released officially, but we're getting leaks here and there. And and I feel after those two friendlies, I was pretty down on the program. Um, the the roster release or leaks so far have me feeling more, much more positive. That I feel like there are some common sense things that are happening that I didn't expect. Uh, how are you feeling about the team right now ahead of that roster release? Yeah, just based off leaks and folks listening to this might already know what the roster looks like, so I, I won't dwell too long on this, but I think I'm encouraged and I hope to be encouraged after the roster drops. It sounds like some of the right decisions are being made, which does leave me a little more optimistic. All right, we need to take a quick break, but before we do, quick rundown of the Welsh manager in their tactics. It's Robert Page, everybody. The combination of Robert Plant and Jimmy Page we all <laughs> wanted. Um, played at Watford, Sheffield United, uh, and a few other teams. Got promoted to the Premier League with Watford, in fact. Played over 550 games, 41 caps for Wales as a player as well. And at Watford, he played under Graham Taylor, um, which is pretty fine tutelage from one of the very best managers who ever done it. Uh, he became caretaker of Wales in August 2019, when Ryan Giggs was suspended and has been on the job ever since. Um, 
I got a quote from him or a, a description of his style from when he was managing Port Vale in 2015. He described his preferred tactics as including fullbacks playing high up the pitch, a defensive midfielder allied to a more attacking central midfielder and pace in the four positions and on the wings. And that's kind of similar to what we can expect from this Wales team. He does like a fast wide player. He likes fast fullbacks or wingbacks, if you will. Uh, he has played a 4-4-2. There's no to play a few players out of position as well, but probably not going to stray too far here and probably most likely a 3-4-3 here with the wingbacks being uh, Connor Roberts uh, from Burnley and Nico Williams at Nottingham Forest as the wingbacks and Bale probably on the right side of things, Gareth Bale that is. Um, so they have the ability to stay defensive and compact and sit deep and you know give it to Dan James, give it to Aaron Ramsey, give it to Gareth Bale, the creative players to make some magic. Um, but you know, and this is interesting, um, when, when we were talking about um, England and, and Taylor, I think you mentioned how you know pushing the fullbacks high up. Is it just is it me or does every single team just say they have the fullbacks playing high up? Is the, what, what teams don't have the fullbacks playing high up? It just seems a bit trite to say these days, Taylor. Is that fair? Yeah, I, I think. I mean, I guess with a wingback, maybe Daly Blint won't, though he he definitely has for the Netherlands. It feels like it's it's the thing that is. The fashion, it has been the fashion for quite some time. But yeah, I think gone are the days of your fullbacks are fully back and your halfbacks get halfway forward. I think it's very much the opposite now in that your fullbacks get uh, all the way forward. So maybe they're fully forward and then they are still fullback forwards. I don't know. It gets confusing. There you go. Well, the they're, they're not going to be at the World Cup, but Arsenal are doing some cool things with fullbacks this season, playing centre-backs out wide. Oh, yeah. Just when you said which team doesn't play fullbacks like that, Ryan. That's Man fair. City That's as well. That's and kind of Juventus in the past. There's a few, right? But I, I do think it is like a classic coach-speak thing, Ryan, yeah. of just rattling through some basic things that are like, oh, that's good enough. What do we think is going to be the, the end of I feel like every tournament we end up getting most teams playing one formation, which I think in... 2010, everybody was in a 4-2-3-1. I feel like last World Cup, everybody was in the 3-4-3, the 3-5-2. If, if we had to guess based on what we've seen so far, what's the dominant formation at this World Cup? I still think we're in back, back yeah, three world, we too. to be honest. Yep. This well, that's yeah. not a formation, though. Uh, it's part of a formation. Yeah, it's the okay, line. well then I'll say back three too, but I don't know what the rest of it's going to look like ahead of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's likely what Wales are going to do and their wide players are going to need to have some lungs on them as do many wide players in the game at the moment. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, let's talk about the rosters and we're going to get some very specific predictions back shortly. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp 
without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our preview of World Cup Group B. Taylor mm-hmm. Rockwell. Talk us through the roster a little more sure. of the England national team. All right. I feel like I've been slightly negative about England. So, Ryan, I will make you feel, uh, I think, slightly better when we talk about the roster. Because some very good players, and I will start with Kyle Walker, who, uh, by all accounts, will be back. The fitness is of a concern because he's been out for so long. That might mean he misses a game or two in the group stage, but I think he is so important to the way they want to play England that if you're getting him back 90% fit, I think you put him in there because that speed, the covering ability, makes the difference for England in that back three. He can he can make up ground that Harry Maguire and John Stones cannot, but he is all also obviously very good on the ball, playing for Pep Guardiola and Man City, uh, can play wide if we if they need to uh, shift to a back four. But I think he being involved in that team, being back in the lineup, instantly makes them a better team because then Harry Maguire can get forward, uh, Kyle Walker can stride forward with the ball, and I think it just gives you a bit more variety when you're playing out of the back. Ahead of him, another key player that will be involved sort of by a fluke, or I guess by injury, is Jude Bellingham. And that's another one that I think will be a critical performer for England. He comes in with the injury to Calvin Phillips. He starts getting more time and has been... To my mind, a player that was desperately needed by Gareth Southgate because he can he can occupy that central midfield role alongside Declan Rice. He can do the defensive side of things, but he is very comfortable on the ball, very comfortable taking it forward himself, but also looking forward, passing forward, looking for those through balls. And I think he provides a link in that England midfield that had been missing. It's not a shot at Calvin Phillips or Declan Rice. They're both exceptionally good midfielders, but I think are so good on the defensive side, they don't offer you as much in the attack. And I think Jude Bellingham can be that little difference. Uh, if we're looking again at difference makers further ahead, uh, you've got to look at uh, Bukayo Saka. I really think this could be his tournament. I think he could be the the kind of standout performer for England. It is a little bit of a, re- a revenge tour for him, a redemption song after missing the penalty in the uh, in the Euros uh, and and everything that went along with that. For him to be back in playing for England and maybe getting uh, like kicked slightly less on the international level uh, than he is in the Premier League. I just think and he's coming into this England camp with a, a, a head of confidence, a head of steam as the kind of leading man for Arsenal or a leading man for Arsenal. I expect him to be a leading man for this England team. Uh, Ryan, how are you feeling about Saka? Uh, I'm feeling good. I, I think, yeah, he's, uh, I, I'm very impressed with him, with Arsenal this mm-hmm. season. And I don't know if he's a guaranteed starter, though, is my... This is the thing. 
Because it could be him, yeah. it could be Phil Foden, it could be Mason right. Mount, it could be something else entirely based on the formation. But I, I think he becomes that difference maker either as a starter or off the bench, and I think he will end up a, a regular starter for England by the end of the tournament. Maybe less controversial would be to say that Harry Kane will be the starter for England, uh, leading goal scorer in World Cup qualifying, does so many things and is just such an important part of this team and uh, at time of recording is two goals behind Wayne Rooney on the all-time leading uh, scorer charts for England. I would expect he he gets ahead of him here at the World Cup uh, and he is their most important player because he led them uh, in World Cup qualifying in goals, as I said. Ryan, can you guess who was second uh, to Harry Kane in goals scored in qualifying? This 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 uh this term around. Can anybody or? guess? Anybody got guesses? It was four goals. Harry Maguire. That is the correct answer. Harry Maguire <laughs> oh, wow. is England's second top scorer in qualifying. Which Taylor, wow. do I get a point? Do I get I'll a give point? You a point. You Why get a cookie. Yes. Yay! Yes. Uh, I have one. You guys all have zero. You guys all have zero points. One to zero. <laughs> and we translate that to the USA. The USA wins the group. There we go. Uh yes. Done. It shows you the reliance on Harry Kane as the goal scorer. It also shows you the reliance on set pieces. England uh I think created the most uh, goal-scoring opportunities from set pieces in the Euros. They've continued that streak, so they're very dangerous on set pieces. Harry Kane going to be involved there. We would assume Harry Maguire as well. The Harrys scoring goals for England. Uh, so that is sort of the the kind of key players that I think people should be keeping an eye on. Of course, the whole England team is quite good, whether they're in a back three or a back four. But I still think it's a... 3-4-2-1, a 3-4-3, and my guess is it's Pickford, Maguire, Stones, Walker when he's back. If he can't go, maybe it's Eric Dyer in there. That seems to be more of a back four solution. I'll talk about Eric Dyer in a little bit. Uh, and then Luke Shaw, Kieran Trippier as your wingbacks, Declan Rice, Jude Bellingham in the midfield, and then Sterling Kane and Saka, maybe Foden, maybe Mount, maybe Grealish. You never know. But either way, I think England have plenty of talent and have plenty of ability to make life difficult for their opponents in this group. I think it's about being patient to start, but then slowly just becoming that unstoppable force as the game goes on because they have superior technical ability to any other team in this group, including the United States. And and I think that can be a difference maker if you have the organization and structure behind you that England can have. So I think there is definitely a way in which England top this group comfortably. And I think a lot of that has to do with formation. A lot of it has to do with patience and then backing yourselves that you are the better team and you should trust yourself to pull off this move or this set piece or this shot. And I think if they do that, I think they will be just fine. Yeah, Taylor, it's, it's that having that self-belief, which is the main challenge for this national team, I'd imagine, but we shall see. I like what you've uh, done there very much. Rice and Bellingham are first names on the team sheet. For me, I think uh, they're very important to this team. And I wouldn't hate it if Foden started every game because I think he's a wonderful, wonderful talent as well. Uh, Graham, a quick look around the Iranian roster, if you will, all those Mm -hmm. famous names we're very familiar with. (laughs) Well, you say that, but actually they do have a good number of of players playing at a high level in the club game. Nothing nothing comparable to England or uh, or even the USA, but they do have some some names that you will you will know there. So and and you, actually you could argue that this this is their strongest uh, group of players in a long time. And I think that's actually an interesting thing about this group. As you go through all four teams, you go from Wales, England, USA, Iran. They would all maybe make their argument that they've got the strongest team they've had in terms of the, the individual talent. 
for a long time or maybe even ever um and the standout name for iran is uh Mediterrani. so joe i think you might have mentioned him in one of the recent yeah. champs league reviews that we did he is a, a key player for porto he's been excellent for them this season he's got five goals in five champions league games he's got 11 goals in total this season he is he's 30 years old which was a bit surprising to me when i was researching this because I would have had him as younger than that, but he's he's been a bit of a, a late developer. And I was reading an, an interview where actually his his uh, his dad, his father, blames himself for not uh, for his son not making the move to a bigger team early. Kind of held him back a little bit, and there was a little bit of regret there. But he's he's been a bit of a late developer, and he's absolutely a difference maker for this Iranian team and for Porto right now. Positionally, he can play anywhere across the front line. He, he, he's played as a, a centre forward for Porto this season. There's actually a good chance that he'll be used on the wing at this World Cup. Um, but even if, if even if he plays there, he will get into dangerous positions. He'll look to score goals. And if Iran are to get results in this group, you would guess that Taremi is, is going to be a big player for them. Uh, Sayed uh, Eza Tolahi is another key player for Iran. He plays in Denmark at club level. He might be familiar to any championship fans out there because he used to play for Reading in England. Um, so he's the player at the base of the Iranian midfield and he's just so important to the way Iran stay compact and they make sure opposition teams aren't able to play through them. He breaks up moves. He closes up the spaces in between the lines. The flip side of his game is, is that Eza Tolahi doesn't offer you a lot on the ball. He's not the sort of player who can construct an attack from, from, from deep or break the lines with a pass. And in that sense, I think a lot of the best players in those positions can do that. I look at someone like Casemiro. So Ezra he's nowhere near as good at breaking up opposition moves as someone like Casemiro, but he does have that side of his game. But then Casemiro can also play the ball from deep and Ezra doesn't really have that. But Iran have missed him in matches that he hasn't played recently. And a third key player that I would highlight is Sardar Az- Azmoun. He will lead the line for Iran. He'll be the number nine, assuming he's fit. So he's been missing for Bayer Leverkusen with a calf injury recently, and it would be a massive blow for Iran if he was missing for the World Cup. I did, however, read only this week that Iran are counting on him being fit for the tournament. And along with Taremi, he is really the player who could raise the level of this of this team in attack. As I say, very compact, conservative team. The idea is basically Queiroz creates the space for these two guys in particular to do something on their own and uh, he's very good at that he's often the one who will, will will drop deep he's very important to the way that Iran play in quick transition he will drop deep he creates a bit of space for Taremi or Jahangbach uh, who's another player that English football fans might recognise played for Brighton now in now in Holland um, and Asmund is, is he's capable of scoring a good number of goals he has a, he had a, a, a couple of really prolific seasons for Zen at St Petersburg recently He's maybe not a first-team figure for Bayer Leverkusen right now. He has started games, but he's not nailed down in that team. But nonetheless, very important to this Iranian team. He has a bit of a broader role to play in terms of how they play in transition, so they better hope that he's fit for the tournament. Wonderful stuff. Thank you very much, Graham. Joe, key players for the US. Okay, so I'm going to run through these pretty quickly because folks are going to know a lot about this team already, but I'm still going to highlight some of the the big names here. Yunus Musa. (laughs) Is the first one, because I love Yunus Musa, and he's brilliant. He plays for Valencia. I think without him, this U.S. team falls apart a little bit, and we saw that back in September in the window because Yunus Musa wasn't healthy. Oh, there's a shock, U.S. player not being healthy. He's a central midfielder. He's great at driving the ball forward. He, in my mind, could be one of the breakout stars of this World Cup. Uh, other key players, the winger core. Really, the U.S. needs some production from Christian Pulisic, who plays for Chelsea, Gio Reyna, who plays for Borussia Dortmund, Tim Weah, who plays for Lille, and Brendan Aronson, who plays for Leeds United. 
Those players need to give the U.S. something in the attack, I think, if they're going to be really dangerous in this group. And then my last player specifically that I wanted to highlight is Matt Turner. So he could be the difference maker if he plays. Like Taylor said, we still don't have the full roster. There's been reports that Zach Steffen won't be called up, which I think hands the job officially to Matt Turner. We'll see if that happens or not. He is clearly, in my mind, the best goalkeeper in this U.S. pool. His shot stopping is a level above everyone else, and he could be the U.S.'s most important player at this tournament. If he's not on the field, I think the U.S.'s chance of, of going out of the group goes way down. So one other note, this team is injured all the time, as I referenced earlier. Pulisic, McKenney, Dest, Reyna almost never see the field together, and they're all very injury-prone. Luca De La Torre is dealing with an injury right now. He plays at Celta Vigo in La Liga. He's a central midfielder and is probably the third one on the depth chart if he's healthy. Chris Richards has already ruled himself out, or has been ruled out, center back for Crystal Palace. He's injured. Jaddy Robinson has dealt with injuries. Miles Robinson would be a World Cup starter for the U.S. most likely, but he is also injured and has been for months now. So, yeah, there's challenges on the injury front, but plenty of young talent in this team. If you're looking to get excited about the U.S. for any reason, it's because of how young and exciting a lot of their players are. Excellent stuff. Thank you very much, Joe. And a couple of young and exciting... Oh, wait, no, lots of old veterans on the Wales team I want to talk about. Gareth Bale, to start off with, 33 years old. Uh, I think there's a very good chance he's going to retire after this tournament um, with his 40 goals and 108 appearances for Wales. Uh, He got them to this tournament with, I mentioned, uh, his goals in the uh, UEFA playoffs. He has a tendency to show up in big games and big moments, as we learned at MLS Cup most recently, and as we've learned in Champions League finals also. So Gareth Bale, obviously their star player uh, of this team. Uh, A couple of others I wanted to mention, Joe Allen. The Welsh Javi, the Pembrokeshire Perlo. Uh, unfortunately, he is a doubt for this one. He's fighting for fitness. He hasn't played for Swansea since September. But um, I, I, as we record, these squads have not been announced. But I think, oh, I hope he'll be a part of those. Now, Taylor, there's a reason I was happy with you covering England and I covering Wales because of the player I'm about to mention. Chris Gunter, the most capped player of all time for Wales. 109 caps. He's one ahead of Gareth Bale. Uh, he's 33 years old as well. Do you know which domestic club he plays for, Taylor? I don't know which domestic club he plays for, but I'm assuming it has a connection to you. It's AFC Wimbledon, baby! We've got a player at the World Cup. It's Chris Gunter <laughs> as well, a legendary Welsh player who did very well for the Welsh, of he course, found a at way. Euro 2016. He found a uh, way. Oh, I'm so, I so want the... If, if England don't do well, I'm, I'm pulling for the for the Welsh. You could even say Chris that Gunter. convincingly. <laughs> I know, I was trying. I just very... I, like... Honestly, the last time Wimbledon had players at a World Cup, it was 1998. We had Robbie Earl and Marcus Gale playing for Jamaica and Neil Sullivan also playing for Scotland in goal. And I I couldn't have been more excited to have Wimbledon players in the tournament. So this is the first time since then it's happened. So I'm very, very excited. The only downside is... I don't think he's going to play because uh, I don't think he is a speedy a speedy wing back that I think it's going to be, um, uh, you know, uh, Connor Roberts or someone like that is going to be in his place there. But but he's one of those. He's their Danny Alves. He's like he's been a massive servant to the nation. He's the one you want on the bus, on the plane to sort of bring spirits up. He's the substitute Michael Sheen, if you will, Chris Gunter. So I think he's very important to the team, whether he makes it onto the field or not. Um, lots of other decent options. They've got quite continental defence. Uh, they got James Lawrence at Nuremberg. they got Joe Roden, who's at Wren. He's on loan from Spurs. Ethan Ampadu is at Spezia. I've forgotten that. He's uh, on loan from Chelsea. Uh, who else do I want to talk about? Some pretty solid midfield options in Harry Wilson, Dan James, um, and Joe Allen, if he plays as well. And up top, as I mentioned before, some pretty decent options too in Gareth Bale. Uh, Kiefer Moore from Bournemouth. Tyler Roberts at QPR. Rabi Matondo 
Graham, who's at Rangers. I've forgotten about him as well. Uh, Liverpool mm. youth product who made... Yeah, he's been useless this season. But he, he, I remember <laughs> when he when he was at Schalke, he made some waves, didn't he? So um, maybe he, yeah. he sees the uh, field as well. And Brennan Johnson as well from Forest, who um, could very easily play the number nine role in this team. So that's Wales, who are pretty deep. I've got quite a lot of talent and I'm hoping that Joe Allen makes it through there and I'm hoping that Chris Gunter makes a substitute appearance to get mm. my, my Wimbledon team represented on that field. My main observation about Wales and Joe Allen in particular is that nobody ever calls him just Allen. It's always Joe yeah. Allen. He's one of those players you always say the first name yeah. as well. It's uh, Joe Linton and Joe Allen. They're very similar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Brothers. <laughs> Indeed, brothers. Uh, one last thing to do on this episode. Actually, two things, because I want to I wanna ask if each of your teams are going to go through in this group. But before we get there, Taylor, very specific prediction for England. My very specific prediction for England is that Eric Dyer will get a yellow card in the group stages. Uh, there are two reasons for this. The first is that I think if Kyle Walker isn't fit enough to start the first game or two, I think Eric Dyer will end up playing. And I think if they're relying on him to be the speedy one to make up that ground, certainly not as quick as Kyle Walker is Eric Dyer. So I could see him having to do one of the kind of cynical professional fouls, pulling somebody back, getting that yellow card to prevent the counterattack from developing. Uh, but also Eric Dyer strikes me as a person who uh, who likes a bit of feistiness. He relishes getting into it. And I could see also <laughs> teams sitting deeper, trying to frustrate England. I could see tempers boiling over and him picking up a card in that way as well. But I think mm. Eric Dyer is getting a yellow card in the group stage. He he will climb yep, into a stand this is my point. if he has to. <laughs> yeah. Don't be mean to his family, um, I guess. <laughs> like, yeah. t- Taylor, with all due respect, Eric Dyer getting a yellow card in the group stage, you could have said, I predict the sun's going to come up tomorrow. <laughs> Sky is blue sort of prediction there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's good, though. I like it. Uh, I- I'll ask you while we're here, Taylor. England getting out of the group, first place, second place? What do you think? Yeah, I think they're getting out. Uh, I-, I, w- okay. I won't be surprised if it's first. I won't be surprised if it's second, to be honest. But I think they make it out either way. Uh, and I think... Getting out is is really I know it's like the minimum requirement and even and if it's second the the media will still be annoyed but I think it's about getting out and finding that sort of chemistry and consistency in the group stage I think they have the talent and the ability to treat the group stage a little bit as not experimentation but as a take your time figure it out and be playing very good soccer by the end of the group stage so when you move to the knockout round you're not still having issues and having to change the formation last minute you sort of know who you are you know what you're doing and you grind your way to wins from there good stuff graham very specific prediction for iran and do they get out of the group so my very specific prediction is they won't win a match, which I think hints at the second part of my prediction there <laughs> for you, Ryan. Um, but they also won't lose a match by a bigger margin than one goal, if you're following me. So that's actually something that Iran achieved at the last World mm-hmm. Cup, even as they as they went out. And I think this team will have a similar sort of campaign. I can't imagine, I don't want to be too harsh, but I, I can't imagine their matches are going to be that exciting to watch and that's my other VSP you will fall asleep at least once during an Iran match so Wales Iran starts at 6am eastern time I predict that people will see the back of their eyelids at least once during that game what if I told you Graham it started at 5am eastern time oh no (laughs) well maybe people will still be up from the night before then maybe so and Iran is just the uh, antidote you need to being awake I imagine thank you Graham Um, the USA very specific prediction Joe Okay, so my very specific prediction for the U.S. men's national team is that Yunus Musa will make a $40 million-plus transfer in the two windows following the World Cup. 
He's a star. I really do believe that. He's got so much room to get better as well and could be like a a Manchester City-level central midfielder. I don't think that's overstating it. I don't think he's there now, but I think a season or two down the road he could be. And someone other than Valencia, where he is now, who wants to get in on the ground floor-ish of Musa, I guess a $40 million move is not really the ground floor, but maybe level two instead of like level 10, which is where I think he could go. I think a smart club's going to go snatch Yunus Musa for like $50 million less than he might cost a couple of years down the road. That's my very specific prediction. I am going to say the U.S. is going to get out of the group if for no other reason than to make myself feel more excited about the World Cup. That's where I'm landing on this thing, Ryan. Okay, very good. Uh, And my final, uh, my very specific prediction for Wales is that they will have under 45% possession in total at this tournament. Uh, They do like to hit on the counter and uh, some stats from ESPN FC. Wales averaged 45.1% possession in their World Cup qualification group. That dropped to 40.9% in their six UEFA Nations League games of the most recent Nations League. So, yeah, they don't love the ball. Um, Maybe you could, if you're going to be generous, paint them like the title winning Leicester hitting on the counter with the wide players and so on. So I think under 45% possession for this Welsh team. And also, Graham, I think like Iran, I don't think they're going to get thrashed. They don't tend to get heavily defeated, this Wales team either. They tend to stay competitive in games, even if they lose. And as for where they go through, I think they could get second place, but I'm going to say they won't. I want England and the USA to get the top two spots. They are playing England last. So that could help Wales because say if England have four points or six points by that point, it could help the Welsh situation somewhat. But I'm going to say they just lose out to the USA on second spot. Did I say that correctly, Taylor? Mm. I think I did, right? I believe you did. Good. Excellent. Nothing nothing you said there, Ryan, helped to change my mind that that Wales-Iran game is not going to be... <laughs> what's the game that people talk about back... Was it 2006, the Switzerland-Ukraine game or something like that that was... Uh, notoriously the worst ever World Cup game. I, I wonder if we might have a contender for that in this group where neither team wants to have the ball. <laughs> it's just, I just picture it sitting at midfield and both of them camp yeah. inside their respective 18s. Like, nobody venturing out. You take out. it. I'm you not touching it. it. No, you. Yeah. <laughs> no man's land style. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the soccer game from open wide for some soccer, basically. <laughs> Good stuff. All right, that is Group B. Taylor Rockwell, thank you very much for stewarding us through the three lines there. I appreciate my it. My pleasure, my friend. And I didn't even try to do an English accent because it would have gone poorly. Uh, well, you did Dutch, so you, you had precedent yeah. to try it. Yeah. But I, I, I appreciate <laughs> <Badly>. that. Gladly. <laughs> Graham Hurtful. Rutherford, thank you Hurtful. very much. <laughs> thank you, Ryan Bailey. Joe Lair, right, keep on trucking, baby. I'll <laughs> <laughs> okay. right back at you, Ryan. All right. <laughs> and listener, th- thank you very much for joining us. It's all falling <laughs> apart here. We're going to say goodbye. We'll be back on the feed with a Group C preview very soon. But for now, bye. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. 
Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.